Matthew chapter 26. So we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together. And today we're in Matthew 26, verse 47. We're going to try to make it to verse 75. One of the things that we are uh, devoted to at Grace Community Church is the exposition of the Word of God. And that's, we, we do that because we believe that's biblical. We think that's what God calls His church to from 1 Timothy 4.13 and other places. Um, but as far as benefits of that, one of the benefits of being devoted to the exposition of the Word of God is that the church doesn't get this bad diet of um, self-help sermons constantly. But rather, it's what does God's Word say? This is, this is what we want to know. We're reading a passage of Scripture, and we're just saying, Lord, what do you, what do you say to us from your Word? Uh, help us just to expose what's in this text and know what you, by your Spirit, speak to your people. And one of the things you learn, and I know we've all learned this together as you do that, is that the Holy Spirit is very much so devoted to exalting Jesus Christ. And so what you find is you just, what, you know, the Spirit wrote this book, and we just expose what's in this book, what's in this book, what's in this book. We don't get a, a constant diet of self-help stuff. What we get is look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, and it's no different this morning. So we're going to read this text, and I encourage you. There's some things to take away that we ought to do and obey maybe feel challenged by, but more than anything, this is, this is time to worship Jesus. See who he is from this text of scripture. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to do that this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for letting us read it together this morning. Please, God, give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see. And especially, Lord, everything that you would have us to see about Christ. Lord Jesus, we love you. You're our highest treasure. Help us to see more about you. Open our eyes to see wondrous things about you in your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26. And we'll begin in verse 47. Please hear God's word. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, 
Put your, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the, to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now there's four major parts to this passage. You've got Judas's betrayal, the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, 
and you've got Peter's denial. We spent a good bit of time or a decent amount of time on Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, which are found at the beginning and the, and the end of what we just read. So we're going to spend most of our time this morning on Jesus's arrest and his trial. So if you look at, just kind of glance down at your Bible at verse 47, all the way to verse 56, that paragraph there, that, that's the details of Jesus's arrest. So let's move slow and read verse by verse and comment and think through, try to understand what's going on in this passage as Jesus is arrested. Try to imagine the scene, verse 47. While he was still speaking, he had just come out of the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he's about to drink down the cup of God's wrath for sinners. He knows that. The disciples are sleeping. He's waking them up. My betrayer's at hand. The betrayal is at hand. It's right here. And while he was still speaking, it says, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd, try to imagine it, with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. We know from this passage and, and the other gospel accounts that it's dark outside. We know that it's cold. So it's cold and it's dark. And all of a sudden there's, there's lanterns that are burning in the distance. The, the disciples don't see it. They're dead asleep. Jesus tells them, get up. They're here. My betrayer is at hand. Suddenly it's upon them. Great crowds, it says here. Swords, imagine great crowds, multitudes of people coming out with swords and clubs, weapons ready to inflict violence. This is an official arresting party. It says that they're sent, it says it here, they're sent from the chiefs, the chief priests and the elders of the people. You can imagine the panic and the confusion that comes on the disciples, but not on Jesus. You can almost hear them saying, Judas, what are you doing here? They didn't know this was happening with Judas. But Jesus did. He already knows why Judas is there. Now, Jesus didn't have some sort of a special, you know, holy, shining, physical appearance that would make him look different from all the other disciples. He didn't have that. The, the prophet Isaiah says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So how will they know which man to arrest? Not to mention it's dark out. There's confusion. It's dark outside. How are they going to know which one, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, which one is it that they want arrested? How are they going to know? Well, Judas already has a solution for that. Look at it in verse 48. Here's the solution. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man seize him. What heartless arrogance. The man I will kiss with this kiss of greeting seize him. Just prideful and arrogant to walk up to your, your master, to your Lord, the one that has been good to you all these years. 
and to give him a kiss of betrayal. Verse 49, it says that Judas, he acts on this plan. Look at it, verse 49. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Betrayed with, a, betrayed with a kiss. Now Judas gives us a perfect illustration of the ancient proverb. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Here's a kiss of an enemy. Psalm 51 verse 21 says this, describing Judas says, His speech was smooth as butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Betrayed by a kiss. Christians, please be instructed by this. Just because someone offers a kiss of affection to Jesus does not mean that they're friends of the gospel. Christians need to be very, very discerning. So often people are undiscerning. Christians can be undiscerning because that little phrase, oh, but he loves Jesus. Oh, but he has affections for Jesus. And they would allow things into their ranks that would be false doctrine or false teaching that would betray the one they, they, they say that they love. He's betrayed with a kiss. Now, how does Jesus respond? Look at it, verse 50. How does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Do what you came to do. Now, try to imagine that. Judas is there to betray him with a kiss, and the first word he hears here is, Friend, I've wondered if that cut him to the heart, if that cut him like a knife. Would it, have, would it have been easier if Jesus would have immediately cursed him and said, you wretch, you deceitful liar. Instead, he goes there, greetings, Rabbi, kisses him. And Jesus says, friend. Then he says, do what you came to do. Do what it is that you came to do. Here we see Jesus, he's commanding the betrayer, the one that's coming to betray him, he's commanding him what to do. Friend, do what you have come to do. Now one thing we notice in this passage is the, the, the royal control of Jesus, the kingly control of Jesus, even while he's being arrested. It's an amazing thing. He's in control, even in this situation. He's telling Judas what to do. He says, go ahead, do what you came to do. Do your business. In just a minute, he's going to tell Peter. We're going to read it again. He's going to tell Peter what to do. Peter, put up your sword. Luke's gospel tells us he's going to walk up and heal the man whose ear was chopped off. Then he's going to rebuke the crowds. Have you come out as against a robber? Then he's going to tell them what to do. John's gospel tells us that when he identifies himself, I am he, I am Jesus, I'm the one you're looking for, that all of them fall back. He's in control as a king, even in this moment. Even in this moment of his arrest. I was thinking, I've been arrested before. 
and I didn't feel in control at all. And here he is in the middle of his arrest, absolutely in control of the whole situation. Don't miss that about about Jesus. If he is absolutely in control as king at this moment, then he's absolutely in control as king at every moment. Every single moment. Now as Jesus is arrested here, in verse 50 we have a moment, this moment, excuse me, verse 51, we have this moment of retaliation that happens. Now, it's not retaliation from Jesus, it's from his disciples. Now, if you notice, actually look back at verse 50, the last part of verse 50. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So they've already grabbed Jesus. They've already seized him. He is arrested right now. They have Jesus. And verse 51 shows us this moment of retaliation. Look at it. And behold... One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now the Gospel of John tells us, John's account of this situation tells us that the one that swung the sword was Peter. And that the name of the man that had his ear cut off was Malchus. And it seems Peter's going in for the death blow. He's going to kill this man. He's ready to fight. And Malchus just just so happens to dodge it just enough not to die. But in the process, he's hit in the side of his head and his ear, it says here, is cut off. Now the Gospel of Luke tells us that immediately Jesus, he lifts up his voice and says, No more of this! Stop that! No more of this! Put away your sword! And then it tells us in, in the Gospel of Luke, that he heals his enemy. Now I want you to think about that. Jesus at this moment has already been apprehended. He's already been seized. So he shakes loose his captors to do what? To retaliate? No. To lean in and heal his enemy. The one that was just struck with a sword. I've often wondered what kind of impact did this have on Malchus? Maybe this is why we know his name. Maybe he later came to Christ. We don't know. Matthew tells us Jesus' response. Look at verse 54. Verse 54 says, But Jesus, excuse me, verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. So he's told Judas what to do. Now he's telling Peter, Peter, put your sword back into its place. Then he gives two reasons. Two reasons to put your sword back into its place. Reason number one, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now that's a general principle. That's sort of a proverb. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Those who live by the sword will likely die by the sword. Those who live uh, and advance things according to violence will likely be struck with violence in the same way. It's just a general proverb here. Charles Spurgeon, he summarized it like this. Brute force will throw down what brute force has built up. Put away your sword. Brute force will be torn down. By what brute force 
what brute force has built up. I don't think it's that brute force or physical violence is never necessary in the Christian life. Ecclesiastes 3.3 says that there is a time to kill. But this is an exhortation from Jesus that his kingdom is not and will not be advanced by brute force. His kingdom is not advanced by physical violence. We live in a gospel age where Jesus' enemies are being subdued. If you're a Christian today, you're one of them. And his enemies are being subdued, not by physical violence, not by brute force, but by what? By a gospel being proclaimed that changes the hearts of enemies. So Peter, put away your sword. My kingdom's not advanced like that. Put away your sword. Second reason, Jesus says this. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So why does He tell why does he tell Peter to put away his sword? Peter, put away your sword. Why? Because my arrest and my crucifixion is according to the will of the Father. It's a fulfillment of the Scripture. Put away your sword. This is God's will. Put away your sword. This is a fulfillment of the Scripture. Jesus had power to skip the cross, but he wouldn't. He could have called down, he says this here, he could have called down legions of angels. He doesn't need Peter's little, little weak physical force. He didn't need that. He could have called down legions of angels. In your Old Testament, one angel obliterates a whole army of men. He could call down legions of angels and the Father would send it, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He willingly moves toward the cross as is his Father's will, to drink the cup of wrath for his people. Peter, put down your sword. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment. This is another reminder to us, and I say another because I've, I've said this, we've said this over and over again as, as we've come through the Gospel of Matthew. This is another reminder to us of the value that Jesus places on Scripture. The value that Jesus places on Scripture. Think about as we've come, you know, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew since 2020. And you think about how many times Jesus has quoted Scripture. Or Jesus has referenced Scripture. Or Jesus has looked at the Pharisees and, and said things like, You don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Or he rebukes the Pharisees. He says, he says Have you not read in the Scriptures? And then quote a Bible verse to them. He values the written Word of God. And what we see here, right here in our passage, Jesus says, put down your sword, Peter, because the Scripture must be fulfilled. The reason I don't call down legions of angels is why? Because the Scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus would rather fulfill Scripture than be rescued from shame. He'd rather fulfill Scripture than to be rescued from torture. He'd rather fulfill Scripture than be rescued from the coming wrath, the wrath of the Father. Question, 
What kind of place does Holy Scripture have in your life? What kind of place does the written Word of God have in your life? Do you value it as we see our Savior valuing it here? Now, Jesus has addressed Judas. He's addressed Peter. And now he's going to turn to the crowds. Look at it. Verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Jesus turns to the crowds here and he rebukes them. This is so underhanded. This is so deceitful. I was in the temple, publicly teaching in the temple day after day. You never arrested me there. Why now? Why in the dark? Why in the secret? He's rebuking them. He's exposing the underhandedness of what they're doing in this moment. And yet he refers to the scripture as the reason that things are unfolding the way they're unfolding. That last phrase there in verse 56 says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. They're fearful for their lives. They panic. These are the ones that said, I'll die. we'll die for you. Every one of them said it. We will die for you. They panic, they're afraid, and they flee. And Jesus is left alone with those who would go on to murder him. We'll come back to this verse in a moment. Now, Jesus' trial, so he, here he is arrested. He's alone with those that would murder him. And then we come to the trial. If you glance at it, it's verse 57 through verse 68. The beginning of the trial until we get a conviction or a verdict. Now, this trial overall, we read it just a moment ago. You know just from a... Just from a, a, a a cursory reading of it, you know that this trial is a sham. That it's not real. It's not, it's not an honest trial. There's no innocent till proven guilty here. They've already determined the verdict. We know that. They want to kill him. They want him to die. They're just looking for some sort of evidence, some sort of witness that would allow them to give the death penalty to Jesus. Because as Jews under Roman rule... They didn't have the authority to give him the death penalty. So they've already established the verdict. He, he deserves to die. We need to find a way to kill him. All we need now is some sort of witnesses, some sort of evidence that we can take to the Roman governor to have him killed. Verse 57 tells you the gathering here. Look at it. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So this is a gathering. Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land. This, this whole trial is not done according to biblical standards of justice. Not even their own extra-biblical standards. They're not even following that. 
Their extra biblical standards would be you shouldn't have this child at night. That was in their rules. If you give a guilty verdict, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, be, uh, it shouldn't be lived out or, or, or established until the following day. They're not living that out. It's a sham trial. Now, verse 58, it gives us a little detail about Peter looming in the background. And Peter was following him at a distance and as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And we'll come back to him in a moment. There's Peter staying back in the background. Verse 59, we see just how unjust this trial is. Look at it. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So what were they seeking? What were they seeking? It says here they were seeking, here's the phrase, that they might put him to death. The verdict, the sentence, it was already established in their mind. It was already decided. They want to put him to death. Now how would they accomplish this? The phrase is false testimony against Jesus. That's what they're looking for. False testimony against Jesus. What a wicked thing. Now could they find what they were looking for? Well, you saw it right there in verse 60. But they found none. Could they find what they were looking for? But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. All these false witnesses come flooding in, but they can't find the two or three witnesses that agree to establish a conviction. They can't find that. This exalts the, the blamelessness of Jesus Jesus is above reproach. There's no lack of witnesses here to, to levy false charges. There's no lack of that, but they can't get them to agree. This is a blameless man. They can't get their charges to stick because of the character of Christ. They're searching every crack, every corner, trying to find a reason to condemn him, but they can't find anything. This exalts the, the glorious innocence of Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Every word he ever spoke wrapped in sinless perfection. Every thought he ever thought, every intention, every action, sinless perfection, perfect righteousness. That's our Savior. That's Christ. And I want you to think about this as you who are believers in Christ. For every believer in Christ, the moment you had faith in Christ, this is the robe of righteousness, the perfect innocent, the perfect righteousness that gets wrapped over those who believe in Christ. You get His righteousness counted to you. One day, you're going to stand before a judge that's more searching than the Sanhedrin. And you're going to need this not your own righteousness, which is full of holes and wickedness and corruption. You're going to need the righteousness of Christ wrapped around you. And this is given to those who have faith in Christ. Glorious innocence. Now, if you look at verse, the end of verse 60, 
The closest thing they got to agreeing witnesses is found at the end of verse 60. It says, at last, two came forward. There it is, two. And said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, this is likely a twisting of Jesus' words that you can go read in John 2.19. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And he didn't say, I'll destroy the temple or I can destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I can rebuild it in three days. This is likely a, a slight twisting of his word to bring a condemnation. Now, even here, these two witnesses don't fully agree. We learned that in the Gospel of Mark. When he records the same thing, even these guys aren't able to fully agree and establish a conviction. But as all this is happening, false witnesses, false witnesses, false witnesses. Oh, here's two that seem to agree. Uh, they don't seem to be agreeing either. As all that's happening, the high priest notices something. The high priest begins to notice that Jesus is not defending himself. He's not defending himself. He's just sitting there in silence. Now this irritates the high priest. But it's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah said this, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If Jesus would have opened his mouth, he would bury them in debate. He's already proven that. He would prove his cause. In fact, he might turn this whole thing around. There was a moment where, he, where, where people were sent to arrest him. Do you remember that? And what did they come back and say? No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. If Jesus opens his mouth, he might turn the whole thing around, but he, but he sits there in silence like a sheep before its shears is silent so he opens not his mouth look at verse 62 and the high priest stood up and said it's irritating to him have you no answer to make what is it that these men testify against you but Jesus remained silent Jesus remained silent. This process, it's not going as the high priest hoped it would go. It's not going as the Sanhedrin hoped it would go. And so in a last-ditch effort, they, he says, I adjure you. He puts him right there on the stand and says, listen, answer this clear question. And he demands an answer from Jesus. The question's in verse 63. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Tell us clearly. Now I want you to consider what Jesus could have done right here. He could have continued in silence. He could have just remained silent. And it would have been very difficult for them, again, to have some sort of established conviction to bring before Pilate and get this man killed. He could have just remained silent. 
Technically, he could have even told him no. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He could have said no. Because their version of Christ, their understanding of Messiah was not right. It was not biblical. It's not what he thought. Technically, he could have said no. But instead, he says yes, and he gives them some clarification. Now, his response is in verse 64. Very important verse. Jesus said to him, you have said so. That's affirmation. That's your right. You have said so. Go read the Gospel of Mark's version. It's just really simple. He says, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Gospel of Mark, I am. You've said so. Affirmation. And then he gives clarification. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a peak moment in our passage this morning. That's your memory verse. If you're going to memorize anything out of this, that's your memory verse. You've said so, and, but, but surely I say to you, but I say this to you, soon you're going to see, from now on you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now we need to stop for just a moment and think about what does this question and this answer reveal to us about Jesus? Who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? What's revealed here? And there's four, at least four things you can take away from this question and answer. Number one, he is the Christ. That was the question. Are you the Christ? He is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Understand this. The entire Old Testament is a progressive revelation of a one that was promised to come. From Genesis to Malachi, from the one that's going to crush Satan's head to the one that would be king forever and bless all nations. It's promised. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Jesus is that one. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He's the Christ, the Messiah. Number two, he's the Son of God. That's in the question. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He is the Son of God. Now, Jesus is a man, but he's not merely a man. We serve a triune God. We serve the Trinity. We serve three persons, one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, and the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on human flesh in the incarnation, and that's Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity made flesh, the Son of God, incarnate. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And as Jesus clarifies, number three, He's the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Now that's coming from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to, listen to this in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. So a man comes before God. A man comes before the Father. The Son of Man comes before the ancient of days. And was presented before him. 
and to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What kind of kingdom? That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is Christ. He is Son of God. And He's this everlasting King that every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow to. And number four, He's seated. And He's coming. It says here, He's seated at the right hand. Jesus says that. Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that is a claim to unlimited power, to unlimited authority, infinite power, infinite authority. He's proclaiming here as he says, I'm the son of man and you'll see me seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now Jesus has made something very clear to those that have him on trial right now. Jesus has made something very clear to them. Right now, Jesus is on trial before their judgment seat. But soon, they will be on trial before His judgment seat. This trial that Jesus is in is corrupt and unrighteous, unjust. But that coming trial is going to be marked by inflexible and perfect justice. This trial Jesus is in, they're looking for witnesses, but no witnesses will be needed in that final judgment. Why? Because Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. They're looking for false testimony. No false testimony will be needed in that final, that final trial, that final judgment. Why? Because their guilt will be plain up for all to see, even for themselves. In this trial, they're trying to appeal to the government in Rome. But there will be no need to appeal to another government in that final trial. Why? Because he has all authority to cast them into hell. And he will if they don't repent. He's the Son of Man, seated, verse 64, at the right hand of power and coming on the, claim, on the clouds of heaven. Now what a claim this is. What a claim. If this claim is true, and it is, if that's true, then that means you believe it, you agree, and you give your life to it. It changes everything if you believe this claim of Christ. But if it's not true, if it were not true, this is blasphemy. These are blasphemous words, if it were not true. Now this claim, if you zone in on verse 64, this claim of Christ, it brings every single human to a fork in the road. There's no middle ground that you can take once you read Matthew 26, verse 64. There's no middle ground. You either agree with Christ and you live in light of the Lord of glory or you reject Him full out. C.S. Lewis taught us that thing, right? That Jesus is either liar or lunatic or Lord, but there's no middle ground. There's nothing in between. 
When he makes claims like this, he's going to be seated at the right hand of power, coming in glory. He's Son of God, Christ, Son of Man. He makes this claim. You can't, you can't be in the middle. The one thing you cannot do is be in the middle. You can't say, I appreciate Jesus, I respect Jesus, or even I adore Jesus, I believe Jesus, and then live your life like he's not the Lord of glory. There's no room for that with this claim. So I want to urge you, if you're here today and you respect Christ and you even say you would believe in Christ, but your life looks like you, you are your own Lord, get off the fence. You're in the craziest position. Either be against him or be for him full on. And this claim calls us to that. Get off the fence. This high priest was not on the fence. He was just on the wrong side. Look at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So the high priest tears his robes. He's appalled. He calls it blasphemy. He calls on the Sanhedrin to give a verdict. What do you say? And they give the sentence. He deserves death. Condemnation. Condemnation. He deserves death. They immediately begin mocking him, torturing him. It says here, spitting, spitting in his face, slapping him, striking him, it says here, mocking him. The Gospel of Mark says they had blindfolded him and they're striking him. And then they're saying what we read in our passage. Prophesy to us, Christ. You Christ, prophesy. Who's the one that hit you just now? Just mocking him. Ironically, he could have answered. He could, he could have told him exactly who just hit him. And one day, unless they repent, he will. Or he has. I want you to go with me to Isaiah 50. Isaiah Chapter 50. Get another little insight into this, this scene. Look at verse 5. This passage about the coming Messiah, the Christ. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Remember, he could have stopped it all in a moment. 
could have skipped it all. But I had I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. You could just imagine Jesus trusting in his father as he endures this torture and this mocking. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I've not been disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like a flint. I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Exactly what happened in our passage. They spit and they strike and they said he deserves death. They declare him guilty, condemned. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus knows the name of those who strike him. He knows the name of all those that would reject him. Now I want to close by highlighting one more thing that we can see about Jesus in this passage. I want you to think about everything that Jesus is going through here. Everything he's going through in this moment. He's abandoned by disciples that he loves. He's arrested by his enemies that he shows love to, healing the man's ear. He's taken into a sham trial. He's condemned as a blasphemer, deserving death. He's spit upon, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's blindfolded. And all of this is on the way to drink the cup that his father has given to him, to drink the cup of the wrath of God towards sinners. That's where he's headed. And here's what I want to highlight. He did it all alone. He did it all alone. Remember verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They all left him. They all fled alone. And then we saw that Peter was hanging in the background, kind of looming in the background there. And then that one, that, that disciple that was closest to him in those moments, that could actually see him there and hear what was going on, denies him in his hearing three times. Denies him. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. No comfort from anyone. No help. No one to stand by his side. Jesus does all of this alone. Now as it was mentioned last week, Moses, that mediator of the old covenant, had people to hold his arms up when he couldn't do it any longer. Jesus didn't have that. No one to hold his arms up. Like David, Jesus went alone to slay Goliath. Everybody else is cowering in the background. Like Daniel, he goes alone into the lion's den. He goes alone. He does all this alone. And why am I telling you this? Because to him alone be glory. He alone deserves all the worship, all the praise, all the devotion. No one else but him alone. So 
Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For him come, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. My fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, speaking about the coming Christ, he says, The Father says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. This is the Father to the Son. To the Christ, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. The Father gives His glory to no other, to the Son, to Christ and Christ alone, because to Him alone be glory. He did all this by himself. Now with that in mind, I want you to just think about, just in closing, think about this. How silly, how silly would it be to begin to hear Peter? You know, Peter makes it to heaven and to hear Peter begin to, to make some sort of claim that he earned his way into this heavenly place. Do you know how silly that would be? The one that's asleep in Gethsemane, the one that de denies his Savior, and Jesus goes alone to the cross, nobody holds up his arms, and you think you earned your way in here? It would be silly. And my final argument is that it would be just as silly for us. You can't earn your way into favor with God. Jesus did this alone. And to him alone be glory. You either trust in yourself and go your own way and pay for it in eternity. Or you put your hope in Christ and Christ alone. He alone is worthy of praise. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for letting us read it and meditate on it together. And Lord, I pray that you... In every single heart in this room, Lord, that you would exalt Christ to the highest place, Lord. That every single idol of the heart would fall. Every competing affection would be put away. And Lord Jesus, you would be our highest treasure, Lord. You would be our portion, our everything, our all. Thank you, God, for giving us your word that shows us how worthy you are of praise. We love you, Lord. We commit this song to you in Jesus' name. Amen.